right, let's return back to Matthew 13 this morning, and we're going to be dealing with the subject today of the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower. I want to draw your attention to verses 13 through 15 as we begin. Uh, This is at the very heart of this parable. Uh, It is at the very heart of our Lord's reasoning behind this parable, which of course is a fulfillment of the prophecy that we read at the end of Isaiah 6. Look again with me at verse 13. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. This parable is one of the more familiar of the parables. There are a number of different interpretations, applications of them that have been throughout the years. Uh, Oftentimes when we look at these parables, we are tempted as we work through parables, sometimes we are tempted to apply meaning to them, which the Lord never intended to apply. Uh, The parables are intentionally uh, for those who are believers. The parables were not given so that people would be converted per se. Uh, They were given to those who would understand. Uh, Much as what we read there in verse 9 of Matthew 13, he who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Of course, mankind as a whole has ears. It's not referring to anybody who has ears on the side of their head. He's referring to those that hear what's being said and they hear with understanding. And that's really what is at the heart of this parable. Now, we've been working our way through many disputes. And last week was one of a, a bit of a reprieve from the Pharisees and our Lord in these series of conflicts. But we learned last week at the end of Matthew 12, when Jesus declared who his brethren were, that was really kind of a foreshadowing that there were conflicts still to come. But primarily what's happening in Matthew 13 is not a conflict with the Pharisees. Uh, But those disputes, you recall, they began with the Pharisees disputing with the disciples about picking grain that was near a grain field. It moved on to the very fact of Jesus healing a, uh, a man who was demon-possessed, was blind and mute, uh, healing the man with the withered hand. And of course, the Pharisees brought uh, to the healing uh, that they, they said that it was Jesus did this healing as a result of Satan's work. And we dealt uh, with that, all the uh, implications of that. But when we begin chapter 13, uh, we notice that Jesus emerges from a house. Uh, Notice that it says the same day went Jesus out of the house. And the same day as to what we finished last week about the who are my brethren. So this same day, uh, apparently Jesus has been ministering in a house. Uh, We don't know exactly what's happening here, but he, he had said everything he needed to say to the Pharisees at this point. And by the way, sometimes it's good for us to take that as a lesson. Sometimes it's good for you to just stop speaking and just walk away. Uh, It's not up to us to always convince. Uh, It's certainly not up to us to convert. Uh, Sometimes you've said all you can say. And Jesus, of course, at this moment had said all we could say to the Pharisees. 
So Matthew 13 really leads us into a bit of a different uh, teaching of what Jesus had been doing. Uh, We see that he leaves out of this house and he simply sits down by the seaside. But you'll notice as quickly as he is seated, the crowds begin to gather. Uh, The Bible says that great multitudes were gathered. Now, we don't know the number of the multitude. We don't know how many, and I don't think it really matters. But the fact that Jesus emerges from the house and there were those who sat to hear him speak. Matthew tells us here that as the multitudes were gathered together, uh, that Jesus does something a bit peculiar. Um, He sees them gathered together, and so that he went into a ship and he sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So Jesus sees the multitude gather around him. He enters into a ship, and he sits on that ship, and they stand on the shore. And this is the, uh, the picture of this sermon that's getting ready to occur. Uh, this was very common in Jesus' day. It's very common that when the teacher taught, the teacher sat down and the hearer stood up. It's reverse to what you and I are doing today. In Jesus's time, the ministry, you would be standing and I would be seated. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is seated. He is, the crowds are gathered onto this shore. No doubt, as has been the case, they are eager to hear what Jesus has to say. And so he now gives himself to a time of instruction uh, for uh, his ministry to continue. Now, the parable of the sower, again, I I doubt we will get as far as I'm intending to today, and that's completely fine. But the parable of the sower is unique uh, in a number of different ways. It's unique, uh, first of all, in the way it's structured. Uh, The parable, this particular parable of the sower, uh, oftentimes parables are interpreted as simply communicating one basic message, not a number of different allegories with several points or applications to be made. In other words, parables are intended to have one meaning. Okay, one of the most dangerous things in Bible study, and a question you should never ask, is what does this passage mean to you? That's not proper interpretation. That's not the way you study the Bible. That's what leads to doctrinal error. Quite frankly, it's what leads to heresy. It's the problem with a lot of times is when people say that, what's it mean to you? Well, it's not about what it means to you. It's about what does it mean? That's why Jesus, and we we won't see it so much today, but Jesus specifically says in verses 18 through 23 what the parable means. He, he puts it right out there and says, this is what it means so that there is no possibility of a miscommunication about what it means. Um, if, if we do this in all the parables, in other words, we say, okay, uh, if this one has some allegory in it, then that means every other parable in scripture, we should look for allegories. That's not true either. Not every one of them is structured exactly the same. Uh, one of my favorite allegorical books and I won't impress this upon you and say this should be your favorite allegorical book, is Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory. It uses a lot of different illustrations and pictures to point us to the journey of John Bunyan, who is described himself as Christian, who is journeying to the heavenly city. And he uses a series of allegories about his journey journey in faith. But if we do that with every parable, If you start trying to find these deep allegorical hidden meanings, it will also lead you to come to improper conclusions. So what do we want? We want the scripture. What does the scripture actually say? Not what do I want it to say? Or what does it mean to me? 
So the goal this morning would not be for you to leave and say, you know what, while we're, while we're driving home, getting ready to have lunch, and you say to the person in the car with you, what did that mean to you today? We will have missed it. Because there is a meaning, there is a central meaning, but there are allegories of four different allegories really going on that are meaning to point us to one basic message. And you'll see those four what are given as allegories to describe what Jesus is teaching. The temptation, if we look for all these quote-unquote hidden meanings, now we know these aren't hidden meanings, that it's just because they're, they're clever. Jesus himself said they're hidden from some. And we read that. He said that he answered in verse 11, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. You cannot understand a parable unless God gives it to you to understand it. We really need to be reminded that our understanding of Scripture is not based upon your educational value or what many degrees you have. Your understanding of Scripture is solely based upon what you've been given eyes to see and ears to hear. There are people that could walk out of this building today and say, I didn't hear anything, I didn't see anything. I am completely confused as everything that preacher talked about, that church must really be off the rails. He said to these, some that were there, he said, it's not given to the all to hear it and to understand it. But to you, it's been given to understand the kingdom. So we have to be wary of the temptation to just simply try to mold and make a parable apply to our life. But the parable of the sower, like I mentioned to you, like Pilgrim's Progress, does have an allegorical interpretation. Now let's just look ahead at verse 18 through 23. I'll give you a preview for next week. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. Next week we'll get into the description. Jesus actually gives the parable and he says, here's what it means. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When any one heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which is sown, was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word and anon with joy receives it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes or becometh unfruitful. But he that received seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also, this is key, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. This is like reading the last page of a book and then going back. So we know what the parable means. If you read that, we know what the parable means. Now, how does Jesus use these allegorical expressions to explain and how do we fill in the blanks to understand the meaning? So the parable, as we'll see, illustrates really what's described as four different responses to the word. Only one of the responses, okay, this is, under, this is need to understand this, only one of the four responses is positive. Only one. So out of all the four hearers, only one responds properly. Now that ought to teach us a little bit about what we're going to learn today, but I want you to keep that in mind. 
only one positive response. So this particular reason is that we ought to find some level of comfort in understanding that the seed will always produce what it was intended to produce, depending upon where that seed was and how it was received. Again, we are tempted in our modern evangelism to try to find clever ways of presenting the gospel. Uh, We do this with our children. We say, you know what, we need to speak to them on their level. We need to give them a watered-down version. No, you need to just preach the gospel to them and allow the Word of God and allow the Spirit to give them understanding. We are, you are harming your children when you water and sugarcoat things. I can't tell you the irreparable harm you're doing. You're not helping them. You're saying, you know, and people say things like about our church, we can't get on board with a church like yours because you just don't talk down enough to the kids. We're just not going to do it. I've had very special conversations with some of your kids and you've been right within earshot. Oh, we'll spend all hour, we'll spend all afternoon on Sunday if they want to talk about the things of God. We will talk and talk with them and talk with them, but we're not going to make it so it, it's a different gospel. We're just not, we're not going to do it. We can't. So if you understand that only one out of four is a positive response, our flesh says to us, well, we better make this better so that we get more response or we get more good seed in the right places. Now, we read Psalm 126 about sowing seed and sowing tears and sowing, sowing in joy. Uh, we do sow seed when the gospel goes forth. But we are never, ever, ever left to determine the results. The problem is, is we think we're determining the results. We don't trust God. We don't trust that God is the one that does the saving. God is the one that does the work. If the four responses were, and we're going to see this in a moment, if the four responses were all intended, or four hearers were all responded to hear the same and all respond positively, there's something we would have noticed. We would have noticed the farmer or the sower taking time to prepare the ground to make sure all the ground was perfectly balanced to receive the seed. We'll teach you something about agriculture in our Lord's day that's contrary and much different than how agriculture is done today, which is really going to open up the reality of why the seed seemed to be sporadic. Why did it land on good ground? Well, some would have you believe the good ground was because the person prepared their heart and said, I'm going to make my heart good ground to receive the seed. Hence the free will aspect. Prepare my heart. I'm going to make my seed. I'm going to make the heart, my, the, the soil of my heart, receptive, receptive to the word. But you'll notice as the seed goes out, the seed landed in these various places. And it landed there. And that is the illustration or the allegories of the different hearers. So this parable involves what? A man who sows seed in a field. Now we need to settle this matter right at the front. The sower represents Christ himself. Okay? This is, this is Christ himself. He is the representative and the sower. Now, you're going to start putting together a whole lot of implications here in a moment. Because if he's the sower, and he's the one sowing the seed, why isn't all the seed being put in good ground 
so that every person who hears it responds positively. There's really quite an intense understanding here about what's going on. So what if the gospel, if the sower, if Christ is the sower, then what is the seed? Well, specifically, the seed is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Okay? So we have the sower, Christ. We have the seed, which is the gospel of the kingdom of God. A couple observations. Not all the seed that is sown bears fruit. Now, you said, well, no, some sprung up. Sprung up, got choked out, got scorched by the sun. Didn't produce fruit. So not all the seed bears fruit. Now, let me stop here. This does not mean that Christ and the Spirit is failing or is ineffectual or is unable, right? He's not being turned away because the heart of the receiver is not accepting of it. Again, I'm going to teach you something from agriculture that's going to help with understanding about just the history of this seed and how it was being sown. So we certainly find comfort in the reality that not every time that even though Jesus sowed all this seed, not every seed that was planted brought forth fruit. Now it hurts my heart as a preacher and every other preacher who's honest with you will tell you this when they know that they're in the midst of people who are still in an unconverted, unregenerate state. There's nothing that hurts the heart of a preacher more than to see them go away unconverted. There's nothing that hurts more, but there's also has to be a comfort and trust of knowing that the ultimate sower is Christ himself and his word will not return void. It will produce what it's intended to produce. And because it's intention and it's effectual, I take comfort in knowing that even though a person sits under the preaching of the word, whether it's this church or any other church that's preaching the true gospel, I can take comfort in knowing that if it is the Lord's will, that seed will one day, one day produce what it's supposed to produce. It's much better than growing frustrated because my methods are not working. You realize man is trying all sorts of evangelistic methods to try to change it so it's more acceptable. We are trying to prepare the soil of the heart of somebody else and realizing that it's actually the sower. And the seed that is being sown, not all of it bears fruit. Not every person who heard Jesus preached was saved, right? So we see the greatest of all preachers, the greatest of all teachers, who was perfect, sinless, which means every sermon he preached was without sin and perfect. You realize me even standing up here before you today, I am just a sinner saved by grace preaching to you, but I'm not perfect. I can, I can swing into moments of my flesh. I can swing into moments where I'm trying to persuade or manipulate you. That can happen to me. The Lord in his purity is the purest preacher who ever preached. And yet not every seed produced fruit. Did Jesus fail? Absolutely not. So the four hearers, it produced exactly what it was intended to produce. It's a great truth we need to learn. So what, what does that teach us? That teaches us that the majority 
of this parable who heard him preach and teach rejected ultimately the seed. Now, widespread rejection is not good. We don't take any pride of looking at the TV or looking at the news and saying, you know what, there those people go again. And take some sort of weird pride in that, you know what, they're going to get what they deserve. Our heart ought to hurt for people that reject the word of God. We ought to be burdened by people who hear the word and see the word and they continue to hear it. And yet it doesn't seem to take root. But again, we also take comfort in knowing that it is the Lord who saves It is the Spirit of God that quickens. It's the Spirit of God that makes those who were dead in their trespasses and sins. It is the Spirit that brings life. So now, Jesus illustrates this parable or this condition by using a word, behold. Behold is a word to direct our attention to. Look. And he draws attention to the sower. He says, behold, a sower went out to sow. A sower. Again, he's the sower. He's drawing attention to himself. In other words, the farmer, the sower, set out to plant seeds. What Jesus doesn't say is nowhere does he say about he went out to prepare the ground. It doesn't talk about he went out and plowed it, got all the lines in a row. Modern farming, that's exactly what you do. I'm not a farmer, so if I say something that's wrong, you can correct me later, okay? I'll do the best I can. I just know farming from what people have told me. But I do know something that when you're planting, a lot of times you you till up, you plow up that soil, you put lines in there, and you drop the seed in those lines, and everything comes up in a nice orderly fashion. You want your corn over here, you want your uh, other, you want your squash over here, whatever you're growing, you want it to grow, and you prepare that soil. What are you doing? You're preparing that soil so that the seed that goes in there has the perfect conditions or near perfect conditions to produce you a banner crop. That's not the way agriculture worked in Jesus' day. They sowed the seed first and then plowed the ground. In other words, they didn't go out with nice little rows and make sure the soil, they didn't go out there and take pH and all the different soil things and say, what is going on in this ground? It's got too much nitrogen in it. The seed was sown, and then as the seed was sown, they would plow it. And it wasn't plowed in necessarily a way of those lines. So that's where you see when he talks about a sower goes out to sow and some of it falls over here, some of it falls over here. This, is, this would almost say that, well, Jesus is reckless then, isn't he? It reminds me of the worst contemporary Christian song I've ever heard, which is Reckless Love. That is the dumbest song I've ever heard. I'm not kidding you. If you listen to that... The salvation of souls was done in a disorderly manner. And people sit and go to concerts and they worship this. I'm like, do you hear what he's saying? This is not the God that you would want responsible for your soul. He wasn't reckless. The seed brings forth exactly what was intended to bring forth. If you're a child of God today, It brought forth what he intended for it to bring forth. The gospel seed was sown. By the way, let me make a disclaimer. Our song is called Relentless Love. Not Reckless. Big difference. 
And you understand that what's happening here is that because of this method of sowing seed in the ancient world was very different, we see that there is a difference in the way that the seed was actually found. However, oftentimes the farmers and the sowers would find themselves very, very upset and they would find that, wow, our planting was very inefficient and very ineffective this year because we just didn't get as much as we thought we would. In his parable, what Jesus now does is he's listing these various places where the sower's seeds came to rest. Some fell on pathways people had made by walking through the field. Okay, they didn't have all the farm equipment. So what he's saying is in that field, there were places where it was trampled down so that when some of that seed was being sown, it, it fell on the hardened part. If you walk on a piece of dirt long enough, it actually gets hard. That's the idea. This was, a, this was like a, a trail through the field, and that's where some of the seed fell. Some of it, of course, is where it was very tight. Others of it landed in rocky areas. Still others, other parts of the seed came down in areas where there were thorns growing. Now, in our modern farming, you're going to go out there and you're going to find out where all the hard places are and you're going to till that up because you're going to say, look, that hard place right there is not conducive to anything growing in it. And I can give you a challenge. Find the hardest place in your yard you can and throw some seed down there and walk away and see if you really get anything that's lasting there. We would till the ground first to make sure that that seed that gets there has room to grow. You would also remove any stones. One of the things we saw and we never could quite figure out was if you've ever been to New England, you'll realize that there are rock walls everywhere. There's granite almost in every part of that ground. Everywhere you go, if you put a shovel in the ground, you hit a piece of granite. And these walls were built years and years ago and these walls were intended to separate people's farms. And the reason that they were there is that they were the rocks that were pulled out of the farms because they couldn't get the machinery and anything they were using to till that ground over because there's giant pieces of granite in there. And I'm not talking like, I'm talking like granite, like the people pay a fortune after it's milled to put in your kitchens. It's everywhere. But you pull the stones out. That's what you would do. The thorns, the weeds, you would try to remove those because what? Those, those weeds, if they're left, if you put good seed in the ground, the thorns are going to choke it out. You say, preacher, you're saying an awful lot about agriculture this morning. I think it's important to understand what's going on here. Jesus then notes that some of the seed fell on good ground. So that after, since it's not done prior, it was done after it was plowed, the good seed found root. And what did it do? According to the meaning, it yielded a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Only the seed that fell on the good ground produced anything good. It produced a significant harvest. One thing we do not know about the harvest of the seed that Christ has sown is just how many have actually fell on the good ground. I know we get accused in our reform circles who stand and proclaim 
without shame the doctrines of grace that you're this is just makes it so narrow-minded that it's only going to be the few of you arrogant people are going to get to heaven the people that say that have no idea what the doctrines of grace are if that's what you say i believe the harvest is much larger larger than we actually know i don't know what it is i don't know how many are and neither do you but here's the promise that I do know, that the sower is Christ, and as Christ goes forth, it's going to produce exactly what it's intended to produce. And that I take comfort in that, that even if my loved one still has not been brought to repentance, I can take comfort in knowing that it is of the Lord. You say, no, no, preacher, I'd rather they leave the decision in their heart. Folks, I can't tell you how wrong that is. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God, including your loved one. They will not seek after God if left to themselves. It is Christ, through the power of the Spirit, draws them to the Father. The Spirit draws a man to the Father. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Not one of many ways, the only way. So if someone says you're very narrow-minded, when it comes to the gospel, we are very narrow-minded. Don't say, well, you know, we're not really narrow. We are. How much more narrow can you get? There's one way. There's one Savior. All roads don't lead to heaven. The most popular religions of the day are just choose your own road. In this case, choose your own soil. Whatever soil you want to have, you pick it. We're certainly not going to pick the good ground. Because in our heart, we don't want anything to do with God. Jesus, as he's seated in this ship, is teaching them this great parable. This great parable. The ship, in a sense, becomes his pulpit. He speaks, verse 3, many things to them. And he talks about the instruction of what he's doing. These four kinds of hearers who display different responses. These are not just four types that were unique to Israel in Jesus' time, but they can be found in every place in every generation. We're no different than the people that Jesus was preaching to on that seashore. We're no different to where we think, you know, I, I would have responded differently if, if, if apart from God, if I'd have heard Jesus preach, I would have accepted him right away. I would have repented of my sins. We're, we're very arrogant about our spiritual condition. And that leads back to the other part of doctrines of grace because you don't understand depravity. You don't understand what total depravity means. You don't understand what it means. And that leads us to false conclusions, which says, I would choose Christ. And yet you wouldn't. So my hope today, and again, we're not going to get anywhere near as far as I wanted to get today. And that's okay. We'll use today more of an introduction. But I hope that all of us today and in the, in the day, coming days, we're that fourth hearer. We're that one that it brings forth fruit. But you'll notice that it brings forth fruit in its proper season. I don't know when God's going to open the eyes of someone whose eyes have been closed and someone who's been very uh, rebellious against the things of God. I would tell you, though, be very careful about how you deal with people who are not in the faith yet. Don't get so arrogant that you think, why can't you understand this? Why can't you see this? How many more ways can I? Our, our evangelism can get really ugly. I've seen some very ugly evangelism. I've seen well-intentioned people 
just do ugly evangelism who are not really considering their own condition and that the only reason they stand there and proclaim the truths that they are proclaiming is because the Spirit of God opened their eyes and opened their ears or they would be the guy arguing with the evangelist who's trying to give them the gospel. We need to be humble. Don't cave into the culture. We don't cave to cancel culture. But we also don't have, to, we don't have to change everything to make it more acceptable. As I mentioned, you sow the seed and sometimes you just walk away. Jesus, of course, had so much instruction to give us and he conveyed a lot of it in parables. What pictures they are. It's especially beautiful to those who hear them. This parable of the sower is a teaching concerning the kingdom. The seed is the kingdom of God. It's the word of the kingdom. Verse 19, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. Behold is this word that is worthy of our attention. Many, many times as we see the sower, Jesus has taken up the business of the Father to sow the seed. The sower went forth. Christ himself would say, I must be about my Father's business. I must be about the work of the Father. And you see, and as the sowing goes on in verse 4, when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside and the fowls came and devoured them up. You see, even the chief sower, Christ himself, some of the seed failed. It didn't fail because he didn't do it right. We know he always sows truth. You know, you hear me say this a lot to make sure that you fully understand the gospel because sometimes we have a way of actually twisting it just a little bit and we don't realize we're actually changing the gospel to our own understanding. We twist it just a little, just a little bit. Jesus, of course, did not have to twist anything. It was the seed. He says, I'm, I'm sowing perfect seed. But even though he sows perfect seed, some of it falls on the wayside, this beaten down path. The soil that's too hard is beaten down. It's no wonder the seeds lay exposed. What's it say? The fowls, the birds come, they devour them up. So even if truth is entered into the heart, the evil influences against that remove it. Verses 5 and 6, he says, Some fell upon what? Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. They fell among the rocks. They fell among the shallow soil. Uh, they, they, they fell in those stony places. The seed springs up very quickly. Because the rocks, the, the rocks actually give the heat that it needs. And it, it, it actually quickens the germination process. That's what's happening here. But yet when the time come, when the time came, we realized it had no deepness of earth. There was nothing to sustain it. There was nothing to hold it. The seeds did not root themselves. Folks, it's, it's one of the great dangers of trying to get a quick profession from people. I mean, and I've talked to some of you personally about this. 
You know, we've all, if you've been exposed to this, it's, it's hard for me to even watch now where we just continue to just give a call and give an altar call and just wait and wait and wait and say, look, let's sing it again. Let's sing it again. Let's sing it again. We got to change this. We got to change the soil. We got to change the environment. <sighs> Folks, if all you're after is a profession, you're going to get exactly what you're sowing. And you're going to wonder how in the world did we sow seeds and we had a hundred people saved and where did they go? Because they sprung up and there was no root in them. And like I told you, be very careful. Don't manipulate and lead your children to believe in a way that they're not ready to understand and believe, as tempting as that is. One of the greatest prayers that I think we as a church can pray for others is pray for the children of our church and pray that at the appointed hour, the appointed time, that God would open their eyes and would open their ears to hear. You don't want to try to manipulate your child to say a prayer real quick and then you wonder why 10 years later they completely depart. We're not looking for quick conversions. Sometimes that seed takes a long time. It takes weeks, sometimes months and years of hearing the word preached and hearing the word proclaimed. Yet churches that aren't quote-unquote seeing conversions every week are called dead, dried-up churches. You know, there are people that think you go to a dead, dried-up church because you're not seeing people saved every single week. Now, do you think that's because I don't want to see people saved every week? I'd love to see people saved every week, and I'd love to have to fill the baptistry every single week. But we're not going to manipulate the emotions to get you to make a profession of faith that's not real. And we're not going to put your kids in situations where your kids are going to be manipulated, their feelings and emotions are going to be manipulated to call on something and think, hey, I got saved when I was five. And they have no clue what they did. They have no clue what's happening to them. So it's really important that we understand that there is seed that goes out. Verse 7, and some fell among thorns and thorns sprung up and choked them. Now, why were the thorns there? Well, the thorns were there because that was a place where the thorns had always grown. Normally, in a modern agriculture, you would take all the thorns away. You would cut them down. But they didn't dig them out. So the old roots came up, choked the seed that was put there. But then it's this good ground. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. This is an increase. This is what you would call an abundant, we might even call a superabundant harvest. We could be tempted to focus on the three seed areas that failed, or we could look at the success that was making up all the losses for the seed that went by the wayside, fell on the stony ground, fell on the trodden down path. What did it produce? 100, 60, 30. The sowing of good seed is never a total failure. We know what that means, right? That as the gospel seed goes forth, it'll never be declared a total failure. It's not a failure at all. But it can never be said, it never produces. Now, the years go by and the gospel gets more and more watered down and it's going to continue to do that. You can mark that down. 
The way, the way of the modern church is to move as far away from the preaching of the Bible and move as closely as we can to the acceptability to the world. Mark my words, that's what's happening. And they're doing that to try to make the church and the gospel and the Bible more appealing to the flesh. The gospel will always be offensive. It will offend you. It will wound your soul. It will wound your conscience. It will make you understand what a wretch that you are, the depravity of your heart, how you're not worthy of the least of God's blessings. It's the same farmer who can stand out in a field because God even lets, he pours out his rain even on the unjust farmer. The farmer produces an unbelievable crop and he never turns and gives thanks to God because it's God who gave him the increase. But you understand that the gospel is never going to be a total failure. There are places today that no longer sow the seed at all. It's not sown from the pulpits. It's not sown by the people. Because Christ was removed as the preeminent reason why they do what they do a long time ago. Now notice that the harvest was not equal on every spot of soil. That's why it's mentioned. Some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. We're into this equality thing about everything, aren't we? And we think, well, the gospel, it better be equal. The gospel better be equal in America as it is in Africa or equal in Australia. It's got to be equal because God's got to be equal. God is sovereign. God is in control. God determines it, not you and I. But what about this? Shouldn't they be given the same right? You should ask yourself the question, like the hymn says, why were you even invited to come in the first place? See, quit thinking about where it's failing and keep remembering, why, was I, why am I going to be a guest at that marriage supper of the Lamb? Why am I here? Is it because I think my own self-righteous, pharisaical acts are going to get me there? No. I'm there by the work of God Himself. And we'll finish this saying today. And he says, who hath ears to hear? Let him hear. It's much like the same, the letters in the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights. Almost every letter Christ writes to the church end with that same thought about he who has ears to hear, let them hear. Who is it that's speaking the gospel? Who is it that's speaking repent and be saved? Who is it that's repent and believe the gospel? Is it me or is it the sower? It's the sower. It's not the most eloquent speaker. It's not the greatest theologian. It's the sower. It's the Word of God. It's Christ. It's a privilege for you and I to even have the opportunity to speak the gospel to a single person. But don't ever make it about you. Don't make it about how many conversions, how many converts you had. Because if that was success... We wouldn't have a book by Jeremiah who by world standards, his success rate was zero. Imagine spending your whole life in a ministry and having no converts to show. Does that mean that the, that, does that mean that this, the seed failed? No, seed didn't fail. The preacher had failures along the way, no doubt. Anybody who's been a pastor any amount of time will tell you ministry is filled with failures. But the seed, the gospel, doesn't fail. 
The sower doesn't fail. It produces exactly what it's intended to produce at the appointed time. And if it doesn't produce what we think it should produce, God does not and will not give you an answer why. See, we think we can demand of God, I want answers. You can't demand God to tell you anything. All it should be is, Lord, thank you for opening my eyes, opening my ears, that I might be saved and for saving me so that, as Paul said, I glory, I glory in nothing except the cross. I take no credit. We'll pick up next week in verse 10. It's an interesting interaction. The disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou, notice the wording, unto them in parables? And Jesus, as we read, gives a most interesting answer to that. We'll stop there this morning. A lot to chew on and a lot to consider already today. Let's conclude this portion of our time this morning by singing the hymn on 413. 413. We're going to continue singing.